In this lecture, I'm going to be talking about the essay Mimesis and Violence, Perspectives and Cultural Criticism, which the editor of the Girard Reader identifies as the most convenient single summary of Girard's mimetic model. So I think James Williams, the editor, is correct about this. It's one of the clearest and most succinct synopses that Girard has offered of his thinking, particularly as it developed in his two major works of the 1970s, Violence and the Sacred and Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, which essentially established what we now think of as Girard's mimetic theory, which is his central contribution to modern thought, I would say. So this essay introduces a number of claims, arguments, and themes that we'll be coming back to at various points in the course. And I think it does it in an extremely clear and simple way that um, also helps us see part of what is distinctive and unique about Girard's thinking as opposed to other thinkers who have engaged to some extent with related themes. So we'll take this text as a kind of preview of much of what is to come, which for me is also useful at this point because I'd like to highlight a few things that I think it tells us about why Girard is important and worth paying attention to within the broader panorama of modern thought. So, a few key points that are made at the outset of this text that I'd like to highlight. First of all, Girard is acknowledging that there is plenty of prior literature which is focused on mimesis, which is to say human beings and other species imitative capacity and tendency. So this is not something that he originated, but rather um, a theme that you can find addressed in various areas of modern thought, both social sciences and the sciences, as well as the humanities. So what is distinctive about his approach to this, as already suggested by the title, is the particular way that he links it to another theme, which is violence, right? And so in the first few paragraphs of this text, he essentially lays out what the nature of that connection is and why he emphasizes it. So right at the beginning, he points out that in this body of literature related to the issue of mimesis or imitation, there is relatively little or no attention to something else, which is appropriation or acquisition. So he introduces this concept that he lays out extensively in Things Hidden and elsewhere, which he calls appropriative mimicry, um, or um, we might also call it, or and he does at certain points, acquisitive mimesis. And so the the simple illustration of this that he offers is, you know, is extremely... Um, uh, boiled down to a kind of basic structure, right, where he posits um, persons A and B. So uh, person A wants something or has something, then person e obser B observes that and also wants it, wants to obtain it. And as a result of this, they both converge in their desire on the same object. 
So this is the basic scenario that we could say is kind of the, the um, foundation of his entire line of thinking, right? Now, we could um, look through daily life, we could look through literature, uh, we could look through um, mythology as he does and find many versions of this kind of a story, right? But basically, um, here he doesn't really, he, he dispenses with all of that and just explains it in this extremely simplified structural form to reveal that there is this, this fundamental underlying structure that repeats itself over and over again in constant variations, but that really is reducible to this basic conflict between these two um, beings who both desire the same thing. Now, another thing that's important here is that he um, argues that this uh, is not simply a matter of scarcity, even though um, scarcity may be a factor. In other words, let's take uh, an example of a standard consumer good. You know, if you're drinking Coke, that might, if I think you're cool um, and therefore want to be like you, I might also drink some Coke. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a conflict between us because, um, of course, Coke is cheap and easily obtainable. Um, so there's no scarcity and and yet, I think we we can already see that um, even in this instance, right there um, there are counterexamples. So if you um, adopt a certain style of clothing, right, and then I also adopt it, and you thought that that style of clothing was what set you apart and made you unique and cool, then my adoption of it might actually cause some kind of conflict between us. Now, that, that's not because the clothes that we're wearing are scarce, right? They might be easily obtainable at, you know, Target or whatever, and quite cheap. Um, but nevertheless, there, there might be a conflict because the sense in which you possess those clothes is not, not simply a physical possession, but a kind of... Um, affirmation of identity, right? That, that you, um, your, your sense of self is so invested in this acquisition of this object that my also acquiring it may seem to threaten that, right? And so that, that can be a source of conflict. So again, even in the case of non-scarce uh, goods, these sort of conflicts can happen, right? And I think it Anyone who has been a teenager is aware of this kind of a scenario and has probably experienced some version of it. Um, or little kids, you can imagine, um, you know, they uh, have more or less the same toy, right? But sometimes you'll notice a little kid um, will want the toy that their older sibling has, even if it's essentially the same thing that they already have. Um, simply because the older sibling has it, right? And then that will, of course, lead to conflict. So again, you know, scarcity is not, um, is not essential to this um, because it, it seems to be something that can happen in situations where there is not scarcity. Nevertheless, um, Girard, as we'll see in other texts, emphasizes a situation in which there does seem to be a kind of fundamental scarcity, in much of his writing, which is that of romantic love, right? And we'll come into this when we discuss his first book, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, right? So you can think of the 
basic familiar notion of a love triangle, right? Where you have two people both in love with the same person, right? Which creates a, a conflict between um, the two people whose desires have converged, right? So again, the point here is simply that the conjunction of imitation or mimesis with acquisitiveness or appropriation generates this situation of conflict or rivalry. So this again is what Girard claims sets his theory apart from other accounts of imitation of which again there are there are plenty. A second point here is that Girard is also setting himself apart clearly from other theorists of violence, right? And there were plenty of people writing about uh, violence in the 20th century, as you might imagine, because of the uh, great wars that consumed uh, Europe. It was a major theme of 20th century thought um, and of the world, the intellectual world in which Girard's thinking was sort of incubated. So there was no lack of intellectuals um, who focused their attention centrally on the question of violence, right? But I think here again, Girard wants to make clear that he is offering a somewhat different approach. And that again ties back to this concept of appropriative mimicry or acquisitive mimesis or whatever other uh, synonym we prefer to use. And that is because, as he notes, um, Many other theorists of violence generally tended to focus their analysis on the idea that there's a, a fundamental aggressive instinct. And this is something that he addresses elsewhere, particularly in Things Hidden, at great length in terms of his complicated relationship with Freud. So Freud was definitely someone who exercised a significant influence on Girard, and we will address that extensively. But here I will simply point to one important Freudian concept that exercised a huge influence on 20th century thought, which is the concept of the death drive, right? So this was the concept that beyond the pleasure principle, as Freud determined it, in other words, the um, libidinal or sexual um, pursuit of, of pleasure, um, which he initially identified as the sort of primary driver of unconscious desire that Freud we're talking about here. Um, he, in his later work, discovered, he claimed, this other principle, right? So this is often framed as eros, in other words, the um, love or um, libido. And Thanatos, right, which is um, which is death, right? So um, Freud explicitly discovered this other principle guiding um, human behavior in his reflections on the First World War, and without belaboring um, how he defined and understood that concept too much. Suffice to say that he did understand aggression as a, a secondary and distinct um, impulse or instinct or drive, right, within the human psyche that could be separated from 
that of desire, right, in the sense of sexual or libidinal desire. So this was probably the most influential um, account of the source of violence or aggression in 20th century thought, particularly in the continental European context, but it also had a significant impact on um, Anglophone and particularly American thought because of how notable psychoanalysis was in mid-century American culture in particular. So in any case, um, Girard explicitly differentiates himself from this position. Why? Because as we've seen, he understands the emergence of violence and violent conflict as a necessary correlate of the pursuit of any kind of desire, right? Which is always to some extent mimetic or imitative, and thus is always to some extent prone to rivalry and conflict. So where Freud ended up positing a, a dual principle to make sense of seemingly irrational human behavior, Girard ultimately posited a single mechanism, right? which basically allow us to see that desire generates violence. And these are part of the same fundamental structure. So again, to review, I think two important things in this article that Girard allows us to see are that he, while pursuing many of the questions that were already central to modern thought, specifically imitation and violence. He brought those two concepts and intellectual problems together in a way that was unique and new. And he explicitly differentiated himself from the previous most influential accounts of them. So this is something that I think his synopsis in this text makes particularly clear and allows us to see what um, value he is, he is offering as a, as a thinker, what perspective he's offering that sets him apart from both contemporaries and predecessors. So another thing that I think is important about this article, while he doesn't state it explicitly, is that it allows us to see another um, thing that's quite notable about his thought, which is that he's returning to a question that preoccupied many of the preeminent thinkers of a, an earlier period, which is essentially the 16th and 17th centuries through to the 18th century, which is the question of the social contract. So throughout this period, you have a number of thinkers who are trying to figure out um, what it is that enables and grounds society in, a, in its most fundamental form, right? And what provides the deepest form of legitimation to any given state or government. So if you go back to Europe in this period, it was a period when the previous political and religious governing structures had come into crisis with the Reformation. And then you began to have a period of revolutions where, um, you know, alternative uh, forms of government to monarchies 
began to be proposed, right, culminating in the American and French revolutions. And so throughout this period, you had this notion of the social contract, right, that various political philosophers brought up. And so all of them, to one degree or another, posited an original state of nature in which humans were, at least in the most popular accounts, in some degree of conflict and precarity. And then a situation in which humans essentially decided to band together and form a society, right? So if we think of the sort of we live in a society meme. Um, you know, before this time, before the social contract was signed, we did not live in a society. Then after, we did live in the society. And then the question became, um, how exactly did that happen? In other words, essentially, how did humans go from being creatures of nature to creatures of culture and creatures of society? So... If you think of the most famous uh, version of this, it is probably that of the English political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who claimed that in the state of nature, humans existed in a state of war of all against all, and that in order to avoid the kind of self-immolation that this, um, this state threatened to bring about, they decided to, again, compact together and form a society and to essentially accord what Max Weber would later call monopoly on violence to the sovereign authority who would rule over that society, right, who in Hobbes' time was the monarch. So you may be familiar with the famous frontispiece of his major work Leviathan, in which you see the king and then the bodies of all of the king's subjects um, kind of within the king's body, right? So you have this principle of sovereignty that absorbs all human beings and thus creates this kind of stability that prevents this war of all against all from essentially consuming human beings with their own violence. Okay, so Gerard... Um, as you'll see from the first few pages of this, essentially returns to something like this scenario, right? Which is that he imagines that because of the conjunction of desire and violent conflict that I've already discussed, and because of humans' imitative predisposition, there will necessarily be a tendency towards something like this war of all against all, right? That these conflicts will cascade across groups of people and eventually threaten to consume them. And then this is simply a necessary correlate of humans' highly developed imitative capacity, right? Which sets them apart from any other creature and allows us to learn through imitation the various things that make up culture, but also, according to Girard, um, threatens the dissolution of that culture through the kinds of conflicts that it can occasion. So, so far, we're not too far off from someone like Hobbes, right? But it's important to see that the, the solution, if we want to call it that, that Girard proposes uh, 
um, occurred in order to resolve this seemingly implacable crisis did not take the form of a social contract, right? And Hobbes, Locke, uh, Rousseau, the various theorists, theorists of the social contract all acknowledged that this was necessarily a hypothetical event that could never be established historically. Um, and it, w- it was simply something that needed to be sort of logically posited in order to understand how humans went from nature to society. But, you know, one problem is that it's unclear how people come around to the basic idea of signing a contract unless they are already in a society, which is to say, um, the whole social contract theory enterprise is a kind of question begging because it assumes that humans can come to create some kind of agreement that they will all respect. But presumably such an event can only occur in a society in which people have already arrived at some sort of um, truce, right, in which they can um, sort of have a a reasoned conversation and thus generate some sort of uh, agreements that everyone can accept and um, agree to, to uphold. So in other words, social contract theory is a a circular argument, right? Because a social contract is the sort of thing you would probably already need a society to um, to arrive at. So this is essentially why Girard, although he doesn't say this in this text, he suggests it elsewhere and others have made this criticism. Um, this is why social contract theory sort of doesn't, doesn't really hold up. So Girard still nevertheless wants to explain this process, right, which I think many other sort of political philosophers and modern thinkers simply gave up on as, a, as an essentially um, insoluble question, right? We, we can't really know how this process occurred by which humans went from nature to society, so we just kind of have to forget about it and move on. So Girard doesn't want to forget about it. He, as you see, kind of comes directly back to it, right? So we have the War of Augenstall. How do we get from there to a situation in which people are able to put aside their differences? So the process that Girard posits um, by which this occurs is radically different from that offered by any of the social contract theorists. And essentially, it's um, itself an extremely violent process, right? It's not a bunch of gentlemen uh, getting together and coming to a reasoned agreement. Instead, it's actually uh, a sort of culmination of the violence that has threatened to consume the society in a an act of violence that brings those who perpetrate it together with each other, right? And this is scapegoating. So the killing of the scapegoat or the expulsion of the scapegoat um, occurs, he posits, at the moment when this uh, war of all against all, this, um, this implacable conflict comes to a head, right? It, it reaches the point of no return, right? Either the society simply destroys itself or it has to arrive at some kind of resolution. 
And the way that this resolution occurs is not through, again, sort of gentlemen sitting around smoking cigars in some um, imaginary um, ancient scenario where that's not really imaginable, but um, instead it's a, a spontaneous sequence of events in which um, a particular member of the group um, that is consumed with this conflict is singled out. And at this point, the entire group converges, right, and essentially discharges its violence on this individual, right? And this is the point at which the group is able to achieve a certain um, harmony, right, is able to return to or restore a kind of peace. So, again, Girard is trying to explain something not dissimilar from what Hobbes and the other social contract theorists were also trying to explain, but the type of explanation he offers is is radically different, right? So, this, I think, is um, a second really important point that, that comes across very clearly in this article, and that I think is worth continuing to think about, right? Because if we reject social contract theory, then that suggests that um, to the extent that even though, as I said, many modern thinkers sort of discarded it as a, as a, a kind of boondoggle, right? A sort of intellectual dead end. Nevertheless, it does actually underlie um, the entire sort of liberal political tradition, right? Um, Simply because sort of liberal secular politics emerged out of the ideas of these thinkers, all of whom were, to one extent or another, um, reliant on positing a kind of social contract scenario to explain the functioning of of any society. So if Girard is rejecting that, right, if he's saying that um, social contract theory is um, a hopelessly, you know, naive and anachronistic um, way of attempting to account for this emergence of humans into something like the kind of social forms that we're familiar with today, and that instead what um, what we need to understand is that societies came about through these acts of collective violence. And that, as we'll see him argue, all of our institutions, all of the institutions that we um, live under and live with, ultimately are rooted in these sacrificial acts. How does that make us rethink the fundamental basis of of politics and of political existence. So again, I think Girard um, does not answer this question, but in this particular text, he does lay out um, his proposal for how we should understand the origin of our social institutions in a particularly clear and succinct way. So I think the other point that is is important that we see in this article to sort of wrap things up 
is we do get a sense of how he works with evidence. In other words, um, as I said, social contract theorists, you know, essentially invented these hypothetical scenarios that they admitted they could never demonstrate or or find any evidence of, right? That, you know, they posited, well, presumably there was some moment when humans came together and agreed to be a society, but, you know, we, we can only imagine what that looked like, and here's my um, sort of thought experiment of that. So Girard, again, is... Um, is rejecting that, but he's also claiming we have evidence that helps us see um, why this different scenario is more plausible. And the evidence that you'll see him discuss in this text is ritual, on one hand, the observation, usually by anthropologists or ethnologists, of rituals, right, which he claims reenact this process um, ritualistically, right? They uh, stage this situation of crisis, of, um, of, of social chaos. And here we might think of something like Carnival or Mardi Gras as kind of a, a late attenuated version of it. But, you know, basically they stage a situation in which the rules of society break down, right? And we return to this sort of war of all against all scenario. Um, you can also think about how this kind of, um, Situation is often represented in pop culture with uh, something like The Purge, right? Where, you you know, you basically have this idea of these moments where the rules can be suspended and people return to some sort of primordial state of unconstrained violence, right? And so, um, so he claims that rituals... Uh, essentially reenact this process of the sort of um, threat of violence consuming society. And then they also uh, simulate its resolution, right? So without going into that too much at this point, because we'll be coming back to it later, I simply wanted to point out that he does claim there is evidence that you can observe, even in the contemporary world, that reveals um, this uh, procedure Right, which which he claims represents the founding of of societies, right, and that he claims societies historically have reenacted their own foundings in this way. So a second point is myth, right, and you'll see him working a little bit with myth here. And there's just one interesting uh, point he makes that I think is worth worth dwelling on and keeping in mind, which is that. Myths do not represent scapegoating, right? Instead, what they instead they they are more like a sort of cover up, right? They they explicitly do not represent scapegoating. Instead, what they represent is the scapegoater's perspective on these actual instances of persecution, and the scapegoater's perspective is that the scapegoat, right, who essentially became the object of the community's sort of discharge of violence was in fact guilty of the crimes or sins that brought the community into this situation of crisis in the first place and that therefore his or her expulsion or or killing was the necessary precondition of peace because he or she was in fact responsible for it. So he brings up the example of Oedipus, right, who is 
um, represented in the myths as guilty of these various violations of taboos and transgressions. The society is consumed by a plague, which, as we'll get into later, Girard understands as a kind of um, proxy for this contagious social violence. And it is through Oedipus's expulsion that Thebes is able to restore order. So part of the point here is that Oedipus is not represented as a scapegoat, but rather is represented as as guilty of having brought about this uh, crisis. And this is why a myth is never a direct representation of scapegoating. Instead, what it shows us is how the scapegoaters understand, after the fact, their act of scapegoating, right? And so this is a crucial distinction. And perhaps it also raises a problem regarding this issue I'm bringing up, which is Girard's use of evidence, which is that if even texts that seem to deny or simply exclude or not represent directly any kind of act of scapegoating can be understood as evidence of scapegoating, doesn't that mean that the theory is in some sense non-falsifiable? So we might compare this to some standard criticisms of Freud, right, which is that, you know, if um, even if my dream isn't explicitly about sex, um, then it's really about sex and the sex was merely repressed. Or even if, um, you know, some uh, person overtly denies that uh, the content of their dream or the nature of their relationship to somebody else was sexualized, um, that merely further proves that it was, right? So we might wonder if um, there's a similar problem going on here with how Girard is thinking about evidence in that, if even the denial or um, non-representation of scapegoating can be understood as evidence of scapegoating, then what sort of evidence would actually disprove the historical existence and centrality of scapegoating? So this is a problem that is often raised with Girard's theory. And at this point, rather than trying to address it, I hope we can just keep it in mind and come back to it at later points, particularly when we look at how he engages with myth as well as ritual. And just think about to what extent he is effective in um, responding to that. And also to what extent we find his uh, particular analyses of evidence um, compelling enough to justify his claim that even texts not explicitly about scapegoating can nevertheless point to its real historical existence. So I will wrap it up there and simply add that the the final point that's important in this text is his discussion of the Bible as the text which reveals, right, and he from a purely intellectual or philosophical perspective, does understand the Bible as a revelation, right? And what specifically it reveals is the thing that myth conceals, which is the real historical existence of scapegoating. And so the question that leaves us with is, if scapegoating is the fundamental prop that um, holds society together, and if scapegoating is reliant on 
the scapegoaters, to paraphrase uh, a sentence from the Gospels, knowing not what they do. In other words, if, if in order for scapegoating to work, the scapegoaters must believe that the scapegoat is guilty of the community's sins, then once that mechanism has been revealed, as Gerard in this text and more extensively elsewhere claims that it has been in the Bible, what does that mean um, for this social order that is founded on scapegoating? So I would say that he essentially has two answers, which I will leave us with. One is that other institutions, and these could perhaps be um, religious institutions, perhaps of Christianity, or they could be secular institutions such as uh, science and the legal system, must in some way come in and take the place of scapegoating and um, serve some of the functions that it previously served in terms of regulating human conflict. So that's one possibility, and it's perhaps the more optimistic possibility. The second possibility is that this revelation of the truth of scapegoating, because all of our social institutions ultimately are rooted in scapegoating, will gradually undermine the basis of their existence and prevent them from continuing to stabilize our societies and... Uh, control the ever-present tension and tendency to rivalry and violence that our mimetic nature predisposes us to. So, again, the first version of this is the relatively optimistic one, which leaves open a certain possibility of progress. The second one is, I would say, overtly apocalyptic, because it essentially on a, on a sort of philosophical or intellectual basis, take seriously the biblical idea that the revelations of scriptures will directly lead to the apocalypse, to the end of the world. So my position would be that Girard, in his earlier work, tends more to the first, somewhat more, at least tentatively optimistic interpretation, and towards his later career, increasingly leans on the second position. So this is just something to this evolution that I'm that I'm suggesting or hypothesizing is something for us to look out for in the coming weeks as we move approximately chronologically through his major works. So thank you and I look forward to discussing this text at greater length with you.